This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the BlackBerry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the BlackBerry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. Professional road racing cyclist Lachlan Morton clipped into his bike to join the Blackberry Farm cycling team and guests on rides through the Great Smoky Mountains for our fall Tour de Smokies event. Cycling coach and retired pro Robbie Ventura sat down with Lachlan to dive into his incredible cycling feats and how he keeps his love of cycling alive. some basics you know um how did you get into cycling kind of what was your inspiration to get on the bicycle and you know was there any other sports that were competing with cycling when you were younger and just how did that process go yeah i started cycling when i was really young i was uh seven um and it was basically to keep my brother and and me out of go-karts um we were like big we had motorbikes we were big into into car racing and we were really pushing to like get a go-kart um, and so the deal was like the next fastest thing were bikes um, and I was very lucky that the local club that we had like it wasn't a big town I grew up in but the cycling community was really strong and the cycling club had about a hundred members when I joined um, and the guy who ran it was a, an Olympian uh, from, from Moscow uh, so he kind of took us, my, my brother and I, under his wing, and you know we started in the car park learning basic skills at like seven, and then by the time I was ten, we were kind of doing like interstate competitions, um, and then I saw the tour when I was, I think, ten years old, ten or eleven years old, on a family holiday in France, and that's when I kind of realised that like professional cycling was a legitimate sport um, because like country Australia <laughs> you like I'll bun out if you're riding around in Lycra you know so um, yeah at that moment I, that was kind of I decided um, that's what I want to do with my life <laughs> um, and, and began training like like a crazy person at like a really young age and, and just like was very laser focused to, to reaching like the professional level. Do you ever get a little bit nervous lining up with a bunch of <laughs> amateurs, and, you know, thousands of them all surrounding you, wanting to ride by you? You know, I mean, you got the rest of your career going ahead of you. I mean, do you ever get a little ner- nervous? And then second, do you get nervous that you're going to get like 37? Yeah, I get more nervous than I get beat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but no, I like to be honest, that's one of the elements I enjoy the most is like you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are, you know, taking a week off work to come and do an event, um, whereas I'm doing it as a job. So I have like a, a new appreciation for it. Um, and I also just think it's special when, you know, an event like Leadville, and maybe it takes me six hours, and then, you know, you hang out and six hours later, people are still coming in, and you can still talk about, you know, the descent of Columbine, and you have like these shared experiences, even though you had like, you know, a vastly different day out there performance-wise. Um, it's, it's cool. Do you have a respect 
for um, for something that when you did Dirty Cancer, mm-hmm. the amount of people that are able to finish that event <laughs> and how fast some of these amateurs are relative to yourself, a world tour pro who trains 30 hours a week. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Absolutely. Um, I think like people's ability to tolerate discomfort, like when they really, you know, commit to an event like that, 200 miles of gravel. Um, it's a grueling day out there for me and like bike riding is all I do. <laughs> um, like I have a huge amount of respect to like, yeah, the people who just throw themselves in there and maybe it's the one event they do a year and they're cramping with like 50 miles to go, you know, on the side of the road and still you see them there like a few hours later to finish. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And then also the performances, like you said, of doing like niche like events. Um, you know, I did this race in the UK called Three Peaks, which is like an endurance cyclocross race. It takes three hours, a lot of running, um, and you're basically running up and over these fells and you're on a trails you'd rather be on like a downhill bike than you're on a cyclocross bike. Um, and I just got straight up beat by a guy who was like 55 years old and he was so fast, you know, like because he's just, he's won this race you know, 15 times or whatever. And he's just so good at this race, you know? And maybe it doesn't translate outside of that, but it doesn't matter because he's the hero there. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so, yeah, I, I love I love seeing that. And I, and I love the fact that whenever you do these races, like Leadville or, or you're so supportive and excited for these guys, even if they beat you. I mean, it's, it's just, there's, there's like a different mentality in the events that you're doing amongst the people that are competing for the win, rather than the pro tour, where it's like super cutthroat. Yeah, and I think it's it's more um, like we're just trying to celebrate the sport and the different events and, and facets of it. Um, so, like to be honest, I'm happy just to be able to be there competing, um, and like I kind of. You know, I've had like my ass kicked enough times in World Tour races that like I don't have that much of an ego anymore. It still exists a little bit, but like it's it's much more than it used to be. So it, it's fine. If I get beat, I get beat. Everesting <laughs> is this. Is, explain Everesting and explain what happened to you when you went for your world record. Yeah. Um, so Everesting is basically you need to climb the the same elevation on a bike ride as the height of Mount Everest, so 8,850 metres. 27,000 feet. Yeah, 27,000 feet. And you have to use the same hill, and you basically just go up and down. And But they count the downhill. Yeah, so they and count the, the, the clock runs, so you have to go up and down, up and down. Um, and during uh, like COVID and the lockdown, it became a really big challenge. Um, because you could do it anyway. And I was actually, like it was the, the morning I was going for the Coca Pelle record. Okay. I got a message from JB saying like, oh, I'm gonna go for the Everesting record. And it was like one at a time, mate. <laughs> <laughs> one at a time. <laughs> but, um, so straight after Coca Pelle, I was like, okay, I'm gonna take this thing on. And you basically use like a Strava segment of a hill and then they count how many times you do it. And- How long was yours? My climb was uh, three kilometers, a couple miles, and average 10%. Um, and I had to do it, oh man, I think it was like- Butterfly gap. Yeah, 40 times. Like, oh. 
Butterfly, yeah, 40 times. What do you yeah. mean? <laughs> um, and the record, I think, was 7 hours 40 or something. Um, well, yeah, 7 hours 40 or something. And basically, the, the segment I'd chosen... <laughs> they, Hold on, so wait, wait, wait. No, so he just does it. You don't know about this yet. No, I didn't know. And, and um, JV, who's my boss, he was getting very excited about the idea of doing it and sort of getting more into the details. And it was becoming like a bigger thing. And I was like, I just want to go out and do this. Um, so I was just at home and spoke to my dad. And dad was like, yeah, I'll come out and like take the esky and give you a few bottles. So like we just went out the next day and I just did it. And I beat the record by 10 minutes or something. 10 minutes and broke the record. Great. Days done. Packed up. Went home. Um, and then there was an issue apparently with the, the Strava segment had been miscalculated and a bunch of people complained. And First off, how did people figure it out? I don't know. Someone went, so, that, like, so essentially the, someone had recorded this segment and apparently it was inaccurate. So I'd been climbing less meters each time. Um, and I had to, they, they, were, they discredited it three days later or something. So he gets the record. It's all over the place. Blackmore smashed the record by 10 minutes. It's crazy. He, he just went with his dad. They just yeah. went out and did it one day. And I don't even think he published it. It was like someone just no, saw it on Strava. They just figured out that Lockman broke this, the Everesting record. And people have been trying to break it. I mean, like, it's been like ratcheting up. Then he put it on the shelf. 10 minutes, done. He's exhausted. He just finished Coca Pelli. All of a sudden, Vela News, Cycling News, starts reporting that he, he's disqualified. Yeah, and it was almost like. Like I'd somehow cheated or something, and I like hate that like idea because I was just like, look, I'm I'm just following their rules. Um, so anyway, I knew when I'd done it, I'd been trying to be extra careful, so I'd been overriding the segment by like 50 meters each side, right, to make sure I'd done more. <laughs> and so I was like, I can go do this faster. Um, so I went back like the next day and just did it. But it was like one week I've done this hill like 80 times or something. <laughs> so yeah, 80 times. It was like I can't recommend Everesting to anyone. It's exactly what you think it would be. Um, <laughs> like, you, you basically you do the hill and then the first time you're like, that was pretty tough and that's the best it feels. Every time it's just a little bit harder, <laughs> a little bit harder, a little bit harder. Until you're halfway through and you're just like, somebody get me out of here. It's like, um, so monotonous. But, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to have done it, but, yeah. Now, did you, did you go by power? Did you go by, was your dad clipping off the times? Your eyes, did you know you were ahead of it? Um, I had like a very vague idea in my head of, I, I'm not like big on um, riding directly to power. Um, I, I, I like would glance at it to make sure you're kind of in the ballpark, um, but you kind of I have enough experience in in the long stuff that you know when it gets bad, it doesn't really matter what you've done beforehand. It's gonna suck equally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my my strategy was basically start if you're feeling good, go hard. So like I kind of knew I had a buffer, and mentally in your head you're like, okay, I'm. Five minutes up on the record, halfway. Okay, so you knew how long. It, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so you ha I had an idea of like each lap needs to take me between 
10 minutes and, and nine and a half minutes or something. And um, you were going 9.15, 9.15. start quick, start quick, and then like mentally, it's always nice to be ahead of the curve for chasing. Um, for me anyway, it's like I need to know I got that little bit of, of buffer. Um, then yeah, would you sprint down it or would you tuck? Super tuck down uh, because I was hitting like 70 miles an hour. Oh, straight? Dead straight. Um, so just like dropping directly down and trying to like eat something. Then <laughs> a quick U-turn? Quick U-turn back up. Um, and it was great because the first time it was just me and dad and then like it's a pretty quiet country road at the back of um, Fort Collins. And the second time I started doing it and a few people saw that I was back doing it and then people started coming out. We had a little crowd <laughs> on the top and like the police came out, it was great. Did they send you like a great plaque or anything? What's the... No, it's, and it's, it's cool. It's, it's another one of those great things that it's kind of like, you don't win anything because it's, it's more of like, they just say, okay, you qualified, you've completed it. So it's the same as the person who takes 24 hours to do it. Um, it's just like, it's more about completing it. It was never intended to be about speed or record. But if you think about the guy that currently has the record, he's the polar opposite of Lachlan. He did all of this math, all of this research. He built this special bicycle that only had one chain ring on it. It was under the UCI weight limit. He wore this aerodynamic equipment. He figured out exactly how fast she should go in each and every segment. You know, the guy who has it right now. Yeah. And he completely like, dove into the science of how to break the, the Everesting record. And he, he did it basically with math. It was, it was, it was Which is, I also respect that, yeah. you know, as, as much as it's so different from my approach and I would never go down that road, it's cool to see, like, because, I mean, he's also not a professional athlete, right. you know, and he can basically work the numbers to a point where he's just faster, you know, which I respect it. Talk about the, the Coca-Cola Trail. Um, you made some mistakes on that race. Mm -hmm. um, even the best in the world made mistakes. Talk about that adventure what that was like and a couple of the challenges you had out there. Yeah, so Cocopelli, um, it's like basically a half day if you're going fast um, from Moab to Fruta. And it's desert trails, it's on a mountain bike. Um, and again, I was just looking for things to do that weren't super far from home and I could just go and do without contact with anyone basically. Um, so it was like a perfect challenge and like most of these things, um, they always come around a lot quicker than I think, and I'm always a bit less prepared than I think. So I kind of just jump into it, and uh, that was no exception. Because uh, I started and my headlamp died almost immediately. It's at night. Yeah, I, sta I started at four in the morning, and my lights died, so I, I basically did the first two hours in the dark, and then... How? Oh, it was just, it was really difficult. I had to go very slow on the day. It's a small little trip. It's <laughs> yeah. technical. Yeah. It's dark. Um, and then... Did your cell phone out? And then I, I broke my rear wheel, uh, which was the main main issue I had. And I'd done up the... Um, if you've ever used tubeless um, tires, the, the valve, I'd just done up way too tight. So it took me like 10 minutes to get the valve out. Um, so I lost like probably 10 or 15 minutes just there. Um, and then was running very low on water and had to sort of like filter out of a very questionable water source in the end. Um, but got it done. <laughs> like, 
it was. Um, yeah. Did you run out of water because you didn't have a station set up, or no? So you can't have any support. Um, so basically, any water you source, you have to you have to find on route, um, and that part of the world there's not a lot of water. There's basically two places on the route you can get it without leaving the course, um, and I just sort of had underestimated how much water I would need. Um, and I, I mean, I, I scraped by, but it was definitely rations for the last sort of four hours. Well, but let's let's talk about the alt tour um, and that incredible adventure. Uh, hopefully, all of you followed along a little bit with his adventure at the Tour de France, just to give it some perspective. I think you went 2,500 kilometers further than the Tour de France. I think the Tour de France is 3,500. You did 5,500. Yeah. And I think you did at least at least 75,000 more feet of climbing. I think you did 215,000 feet of climbing. Um, put that in perspective, we did three today. He did, how many days was it? Uh, it took me 17 days. 17 days, 215,000 feet of climbing. That's a, that's a couple of years for most cyclists. I mean, he did it in 17 days. Talk about how the whole thing kind of came about. Then we'll talk about what you brought along with you, your bike. Let's start with how did it happen? Um, again, like, the idea came to me through JV, my boss, um, and he was sort of asking, do you think you could, you know, basically ride the whole tour route plus the transfers and still beat the race? Um, and I kind of did the, like, napkin calculation and was like, I think I could do that. <laughs> um, it was more so like, I would really love to Hold on, did that. he give you a day to think about it or was it the same call? But you said yes. He sent me a message. I, I basically wrote back yes, and then oh, and then did the napkin calculation and was like probably. Um, and then it seemed like um, that was about six months beforehand, so last off season. And then like the the preparation kind of began around sort of creating the the route in between, and then. They wanted me to do it um, with the support of like the team, so like I would have a, a van, but I, I'd rather do it like old school, self-supported, um, more look at the, like the origins of the, the tour basically, to like celebrate what the tour originally was. Um, so that took a little while to get that across the line, um, but eventually they said, yeah, okay, you can do it in that, that fashion. Um, because obviously that, for them, it was kind of like an unnecessary risk yeah. because like the chances of me finishing are way lower <laughs> self-supported. Um, but that's kind of the way I wanted to do it. So yeah, then we basically just slowly built up to it. Um, and I didn't do a lot in terms of, I had a very heavy racing schedule beforehand. So I wasn't doing a lot physically to prepare, but I'd done enough um, long ultra sort of events beforehand that I had the experience. Um, Did you start by sleeping on the floor to prepare your body for it? Yeah, I started sleeping on the floor for the week before, um, which sounds stupid. Like I was in, I was in an Airbnb in like Brest, like where the start is, and I was just sleeping on the ground. Um, but it takes two or three days to get used to sleeping on the ground, like to get good sleep, and I knew. I needed to get good sleep from the very beginning. Um, so, yeah, I, I did those few little things. Um, 
And then, like, the closer it came, um, the bigger I realized it was. Get nervous? Yeah, definitely nervous. Um, and also, just when you... It's very easy to talk about doing things. And, like, there's always, like... Um, True. Yeah, but there's, like, a... And there's a romance around it. You're kind of, like, talking about the old tour and, like... You see these photos from an early tour, right? And there's the guy who's drinking a bottle of wine, it's black and white, and like, you're like, epic, like it must have been so fun. Yeah. The reality is his knees are probably killing him. I bet he smelled horrible, yeah. you know, like, and he'd been up for 12 hours and probably wanted to be anywhere else, you right. know? Like, that's the actual reality of it. So, like, flipping that switch in the few days beforehand between like talking about, oh, it's gonna be this awesome, epic adventure, to like, okay, it's just going to be a lot of suffering involved each day. Um, and I'm going to have to be like absolutely on my A game because any little thing, niggle, saddle sore, anything can really just derail the whole thing. Um, so the closer I got, the more I realized I was like, this is going to be incredibly challenging. Uh, but I kind of like that feeling of like that little bit of uncertainty that you're like, I'm not sure I can do this, but outside like, the comfort zone. Exactly, yeah. and then you you basically like acknowledge that, and then commit to the end goal. And then the second you commit, it's like, okay, now I'm all in. And once once I was on the road, it's like this is very simple now. Um, and the the beauty of it is in the simplicity, uh, and that's what I think I love the most about those events uh, compared to even a traditional race right like there's so many so many factors go into a, a, a road race like if you take the tour de france the tactics your role in the team uh, the recovery like there's, there's so many little parts that it's quite complicated whereas for the old tour it's just sort of me riding as hard and as long as I could every day. The battle's then, not the, the, the other riders, it's you. It's just me. Yeah. And, and that's nice in that you can, you have a lot of control over um, what you're doing, how you feel, how you can react. Um, and yeah, essentially it's just a battle against yourself, which like, I think you get a lot out of that in, in, that, in the simplicity of just that battle. And each time you win that little battle over yourself, you get better at it and, and the whole thing kind of Gains momentum. Um, was there ever a point where you were like, this is too much? I thought um, on day three, I really thought I was going to have to stop um, because my knee had blown out and I was trying like every different thing to try and like get on top of it um, and just couldn't, couldn't manage it. And that's when I put flat pedals on my bike um, and started wearing sandals and that like fixed that. Um, he couldn't call Dr. Sprouts. They were like, there was like rules around him. Yeah. Up to some of the rules. Like he couldn't go out and like go see an ortho in the middle of it. No, yeah, I was just doing it all under my, my own um, power. So yeah, no support from the team. I was just camping. Um, so I would yeah, sleep on the ground every night and just organize my own food. Um, and in, in a lot of ways that's, um, it's kind of a nice distraction from the pure physical effort because you're constantly trying to manage getting food, where am I going to sleep, um, just little things that like help to take away from the fact that you're not, you're not just like, okay, I need to get 
another 100 miles down the road before I can sleep. You're like, I need to get 50 miles of fine water and then I need to get 30 miles, pick up dinner and then like little things to, to look after yourself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that was the most uncertain I was um, that I could do it. And then once I kind of overcame that, um, it's kind of the realization that I think the, the most powerful thing I had from dealing with that was I thought, okay, once I get my knee sorted, it's going to be easy. And then I got the knee sorted and the next day I got four flat tires and ran out of tubes, you know, and then dealt with that. Like, okay, now I'm stocked up on tubes. I found a bike shop. Like tomorrow's going to be easy. And then the next day, it just rains the whole day and you're like, it wasn't supposed to rain today. And you realize that like, once I kind of resigned myself to the fact, that I was like, it's not going to get easier. <laughs> Every day there's going to be something. And then mentally, you just kind of wait for that, whatever that difficulty is. And you're like, I'll just deal with it and then get on with it, you know, because uh, no one's going to help me. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you? I mean, there was other riders that started to figure out what you were doing. They would come out. How important was it to see other people? Did they help you? Were they a distraction? Did you like when they were there at times, or were you like, I just want my time? Um, it really depended on um, the the moment um, because you had someone like you know you'd have someone turn up at just the moment you need. You know when you're like thinking like, oh man, I dislike. I, can't, I don't know if I could do another 100 miles today. And then someone turns up and I would generally just try and chat about their life because I remove myself from the situation I'm in and try and learn about where I'm at. Um, and before you know it, you pass that bad moment and they turn off and you're like, okay, you know, 80 miles, I could do that. Um, but other times, you know, you were like 10 hours deep into an effort and trying to get over like Vong 2 and someone turns up perfectly fresh and they're like, oh, why are you wearing sandals? <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm sorry, I just need a little moment to myself here. <laughs> um, and it was nice and the majority of people were very respectful. Um, I did have one guy who followed me for like the last 100Ks of one day and then camped with me and then rode the next 200 kilometers. Um, which, like, we ran out of things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, yeah, so, but he no. Can just, the nice thing about Lachlan, he can just go harder until he drops them. Like, yeah. like, well, regularly, but if you have 30 pounds of weight on your bike, yeah. that's harder. <laughs> it's a lot harder than you think. Like, if it was uphill, I'd have a lot of trouble dropping anyone. Um, so, yeah, it was a unique challenge. and. There was a certain point when um, it had gathered so much traction, um, unbeknownst to me, because I was just doing my thing. Um, that when we were going through the Alps, at one point there was like 30 people. And In they- Salta? Yeah, and, which was like amazing. Yeah, and then cool. all of a sudden very dangerous. <laughs> because <laughs> like, you know, we didn't have road closures or, or police motorbikes like here. We're just on open roads, you know. Um, so they started to, also unbeknownst to me, they started to delay my dot. Um, oh, so they didn't know, oh, I got So you. not, like, huh. people couldn't work out exactly where I was. I was generally 20 minutes ahead. 
and I would still get a lot of people because they were there early, but um, not. I didn't have like the forest gum. Hell's <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your tell us about your bike. Like, what did you bring? How did you work? How did you decide what to bring? I mean, is it like? Yeah, I um, I'd like, as I said, I'd done a few events beforehand, and and the temptation when you're carrying your own stuff is to be like, I need as little as possible. Um, but the challenge with this was, it's so long, you need to be comfortable. So like. You need a, a proper sleeping bag. You need like a, a good bivy that you know is not going to fill up with water if it rains. Um, so basically, you need to go. So I took a lot of really comfortable. Would, would seem like more luxury, like a blow-up pillow. <laughs> That's luxury. Um, and so it was a heavier setup than I would normally take. Um, but I basically had a full sleeping system, which was like an air mat, uh, sleeping bag. A sleeping bag liner, uh, a bivy pillow, and then I had like a little camp stove that I could cook with, um, and a pot. Yeah, and a little pot um, with a and a burner. Sorry, and um, then like a lot of spares, obviously. So tires, tubes, chain breaker, um, all the things that you need to, to basically look after your bike on the go, um, and then. Beyond that, it's just clothing, um, which clothing's where uh, you really need to understand what you have, and you can get away with a lot less. You know, if you if you have a, a really good rain jacket that I had, so has a hood, has everything, and you know it fits over a puffy jacket, for example. If I have those two things, I know I'll always be warm, um, and it cancels out the need for. Um, well, there's an extra shirt, an, an extra vest. So it's understanding those things, which um, I was able to, to carry not many clothes and just, uh, I only had one jersey and two pairs of Nicks, which I would just alternate and wash um, every day, like hand wash. <laughs> um, and then food and, and water, um, which takes up. Like when you're doing the distances that you are, you don't want to stop a lot. So but you need to consume a huge amount of calories. Um, so that really weighs everything down. Um, but you'd be amazed how quickly a heavy bike like that just becomes very normal. Like for, it feels heavy for a day and then you're just like, well, this is my, this is what I ride, you know? What did it weigh? Um, well, the bike is, the, the race bike, 15 pounds. Um, but then I had an extra 30 pounds of stuff. Um, so if you get 45 pounds. Yeah. And if, if you could do it again, what would you add? What would you take away? To be honest, I think I was pretty well, pretty well dialed. Um, there's not a lot I would change. Uh, the the bivy I had wasn't quite as waterproof as I would have liked. Um, so and I got a lot of rain. I would have taken a little bit more rain gear. Um, because I just kind of had thought, it's a Tour de France, um, it doesn't really rain. Like, you might get two or three days of rain, but it's, it's, it's summer in France. Um, but the Tour was earlier this year because of the Olympics, and there was only three days I didn't get rain on. Um, only three days you didn't? Yeah. So that, that was like a huge learning curve in keep, trying to keep everything dry. Um, 
which was essentially impossible. Basically, I'd have to arrive at camp and hang everything because the sleeping bag would be wet. You know, the bivy would be wet. So you have to hang everything so it dries, so then you can sleep in it dry. And then if it rained overnight, you're putting a lot of heavy stuff back in the bag. <laughs> but um, yeah, like those, there's not, I mean, but I, I had a pretty good, good setup. There's not a lot I would change. And, and you bought, and I imagine you bought more food. You can't pick enough food for 18 days, can you? No, no, no. I uh, basically relied pretty heavily on patisseries. <laughs> that was like my go-to. What was it? Patisseries, just French, French bakeries. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Were I, people starting to give you food on the side of the road and like help? I mean, everyone was trying to give me food, and I was very like, um, because within the rules of self-support, that is actually fine, yeah. but. I had so many people coming out to see me. I was like, if I'm taking food from everyone, I won't need to buy a thing. Um, so I didn't take any food from anyone. Um, I just, uh, yeah, basically would ride in the morning and then I'd start at six and then I'd start to see the first patisseries open at seven or eight and stop, grab a couple of baguettes and maybe a bit of quiche or something. And then just like, I drank a lot of milk Milk? Yeah, um, that was a go-to. I'd usually drink like two or three liters of milk every day. Um, and then just sort of once, like when I was cooking dinner, I would try and get in more vegetables and like some meat of some kind and like make a big stew or something. Um, but yeah, it was almost, um, like there's so much good food in France, as you know, and it's generally pretty accessible. But then you can also get, you can still get caught out. So you have this sort of like, ah, it's, I'll find something. And there was one or two times I ran out of food. There was one night I ran out of food at like 4 p.m. And where I camped, there was no food. And then I had to ride until like 10 o'clock the next morning, um, which was the one that was, again, a learning curve. So then I, I buried some food pretty deep in my bag that I always knew I'd have. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of... You expect these things to happen within, you know, a reason because there's only so much you can control. Yeah. Um, and I kind of went in with the mindset of, like, if I try and control everything too much, you lose the adventure. You know, if nothing can go wrong, you know, there's, there's nothing you, you remember. So, um, how about when you got to Paris? That hmm. last that last transfer was epic, right? 300, yeah. how many kilometers? Uh, 650. 650k. The, the athletes are either flying or getting in some like fast train. He's riding his bicycle in the final transfer. When you got to Paris and it was over, I mean, were there a bunch of people there? Talk about the finish. Yeah, it was, um, it was interesting that last day I basically had to myself because um, the weather was terrible so there was no one coming out dot watching um, and just before I got to Paris for the three hours before I had this like amazingly heavy rainstorm um, to the point where I was like if it's this heavy when I get to Paris I don't think I can ride in the city you know just like just purely safety um, and by some miracle, like right when I got to Versailles, at the edge of uh, Paris, the rain just stopped and like 20 or 30 people turned up 
And I was like, let's go. So I was like, all right, that's all. And then, um, yeah, it was, it was really, um, I was also very aware of the fact that like the, the last 30 miles of each day was always the, the most difficult if you let your guard down and you kind of like, you're like, ah, oh, I'm there. And then you sort of, yeah, you let your guard down and then that, that 30 miles takes forever and feels harder than it should. So I was trying to keep my guard up, but then we rolled into the Champs Elysees and it was like two in the morning and like it was empty. And there was 30 people with you at two in the morning? Yeah. That's awesome. And then, um, then I was kind of like, okay, this is pretty epic. Um, but eight laps of the Champs Elysees, it, it takes a while. <laughs> it's like, it's a lot of riding still. And that, but everyone stayed. We did the whole thing. I think I finished up just before five o'clock in the morning. Um, and it was special. Like my dad had come in and my wife was there. Um, it was finally, I finally let my guard down fully. It was like, you know, I'm going to be sleeping in the bed tonight. Emotional? <laughs> yeah, very emotional. But, um, I had a lot of time to, to process it. Um, I had that whole day to really think about the whole trip, everything I'd done. And it was very, it felt to me like I was like, this is exactly how it should feel. It's just like a nice culmination. Um, it wasn't a huge party when we got there. It was just kind of like, all right, I've done it. Um, and I think for me, like the the reward should always be in the doing. Um, so if, if it's a successful trip, you kind of reach the finish content with what you've already done. You don't feel the need to, to celebrate it because you've finished. It's more like in, in the completion of it. Um, so yeah, I felt very content. Did you ever, I mean, when I'm suffering sometimes, and maybe all of you have the same thing, you just you get emotional. You start thinking about people that you care about. You start thinking about your life a little bit. And literally, you just uncontrollably start crying sometimes. Did you ever have any of those moments where you're just like, just get flooded with emotion? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's that's basically the whole the whole journey is just deep highs and lows, um, and it's, it's understanding how to ride those waves and when to let the emotion in and when to it kind of keep it back. But exactly to that point, like I had some moments when like, especially either early in the morning or late at night when I was sort of by myself in like remote and rural areas or in the mountains. Um, and you'd have that feeling of like, this is just impossibly beautiful, you know? Or like, I'm like the one person in the world who's figured out what, what we need to be doing, you know? Everyone needs to be out here, like where is everyone? Um, and yeah, I, I definitely, you know, there's a lot of emotion involved with it. Um, and yeah, you always have a little cry to yourself every now and then. What did you listen to? I saw you had headphones in, was it books, music, just podcasts? Um, I had everything, all of those things ready to go, but um, I kind of created a playlist of over 2000 songs like before I went and like a mix of music I listened to when I was a teenager, like newer stuff and then music that I hadn't heard but I thought I would enjoy and that's kind of that's basically what was my go-to um, I listened to I tried to listen to some like French history podcasts um, which like lasted for the first week 
And then after a while, I was like, all right, I just need music now. Um, because there's something, it can be like quite infuriating when you're like right on your limit, you know, like trying to get up over a hill and there's someone like talking to you in a podcast in a very calm, like, you know, you can hear them like sipping on a cup of coffee and just like, shut up. <laughs> like, I just need to listen to some music and be in my own world. So, yeah, a lot of music. That was ridiculous. I mean, uh, it's so good, right? So good. I mean, authentic, real, funny, just, I, I, yeah, so, so fortunate to hear your story and learn from you and get inspired by you. I mean, you kind of embody, you know, stepping outside your comfort zone and just managing it and dealing with it, regardless of what comes at you. So, I take a lot of inspiration from you. I'm sure everybody else did today. Thank you for the time. Excited for two more days of riding. Cheers, you, man. Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on theblackberrymagazine.com. Make a great day.